Hey there, listeners. I'm John Sutter, host of Heat of the Moment, Foreign Policy's Climate Change Podcast. Season two of Heat of the Moment is out now. Hear from the dedicated people who are working to tackle the biggest challenge of our time, the climate crisis. And there's no better time to tune in. With world leaders convening in Glasgow and President Biden's recent announcement that the U.S. will double aid to developing countries hit by climate change, we wanted to recommend one of our latest episodes, What Developing Countries Can Teach the Rest of Us About Climate Resiliency. Take a listen. COVID-19 might be the headline event, but the International Red Cross is warning that climate change poses a bigger threat. It's now calling for the world to react with the same level of urgency to both crises. But for many countries, especially low-lying developing nations and islands, those challenges are already too real. Floods have become a big problem in Kampala. Sarah Nandudu leads the National Slum Dwellers Federation of Uganda. She knows that people in poorer areas of Kampala, the same situation was also Uganda's capital, along Entebbe Road, face a terrible and persistent reality: flooding. When you look clearly, what is the cause of this flooding? You realize that it is the way we handle our waste in communities. Piles of plastics and other degradable rubbish. People drink water in plastic bottles and throw in drainage channels. systems triggering backflow and flooding in the city. So now we know that while we are doing the work to transform our lives from waste, we are at the same time averting the effects of climate change. This past year perhaps offered the biggest challenge yet for adapting to new climate realities, on top of the COVID lockdowns across the globe. Nandudu realized that travel restrictions mean that now more than ever, her volunteers in the slums would have to be leaders in helping to make sure that vital health and safety information flowed to those who needed it most. When COVID came, People started understanding that, okay, I think we need everyone on board using community radios and engaging the youth to move. Because using our sanitation units in these settlements, we were able to put up uh, materials, teaching materials to communities. Before even the government could come in, we were the first at the front. And my only hope is that in the future, Even without such diseases, people will understand that we need communities on board at every aspect of life. From Foreign Policy and the Climate Investment Funds, you're listening to Heat of the Moment, a podcast that looks at solutions to the climate crisis. Today, we're exploring stories like this one from Uganda about people in developing countries who are trying to adapt to a warming world. And as if that's not hard enough, they're doing this amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Our featured guest today is Dr. Salimul Hook. He leads the International Center for Climate Change and Development based in Bangladesh. Sometimes it's the countries that have had to face crises more frequently that have developed the most resilience. Take Bangladesh, for example. It's home to 165 million people, all of whom live in an area that's about the size of Iowa. Its density is comparable to megacities like Hong Kong or Singapore. The country is also low-lying, which Hook says makes it extremely vulnerable to the impacts of climate change from flooding to cyclones and even droughts and heat waves. Bangladesh often is reduced by the international media to simply being a victim of climate change. Yet, perhaps because of these intense threats, the country also has emerged as a leader in preparing for extreme weather and flooding. Potentially, in the path of the problem, can become a victim to be better prepared, to know what to do when it happens or before it, when they get the warnings, prepare themselves. Uh, You know, just a a few months ago, we saw flash floods in Germany. And then even in the United States, you had Hurricane Ida hit Louisiana and then go all the way up to 
New Jersey and, and New York, and quite a few people lost their lives as well. That kind of thing doesn't happen in Bangladesh anymore. We don't lose lives. We get affected and it does a lot of damage. But human life lost is just unpreparedness, people not knowing what to do, not being prepared to deal with it. You know, you lost more than a thousand people in New Orleans from Hurricane Katrina when everybody saw it coming. It wasn't as if they didn't know it was coming. Uh, they just got hit. And incidentally, it wasn't the rich people in New Orleans. It was the poor people in the Ninth Ward. Uh, and that's a truism everywhere. The most vulnerable people are usually the poorest people in any given society or any location. In Bangladesh, we don't lose people like that anymore. So I want to um, come back to the work that you've done, like sort of on the ground in terms of preparing for the changes that are happening and dealing with them. And I'm wondering what that's been like in the last year and a half during the COVID-19 pandemic. If you see those challenges as like sort of compounding, like the climate crisis plus COVID is makes both worse, or if there have been any sort of unexpected strategies that have come out of, you know, trying to figure out how to deal with COVID. I'm just wondering if you see any link between those two huge issues. Absolutely. There's a very clear link between the COVID crisis and the climate crisis. I'll speak from my own perspective, which has been working with the most vulnerable communities in the most vulnerable countries, preparing them to deal with climate change. And then we got hit by COVID-19. And as it happens, it's the same vulnerable communities that were vulnerable to climate that also were vulnerable to COVID in two senses. Firstly, they were vulnerable to the virus infection itself, particularly poor people living in the slums of major cities in the developing countries. And secondly, they also were susceptible to the economic impacts of the lockdown measures that were taken to deal with it. They were, you know, people who had to get out to earn their daily bread and were confined to their homes and weren't able to earn a living. And so the COVID crisis hit exactly the same people that we had been working with on the climate change front. In fact, uh, we turned our work to helping them deal with COVID uh, at that time for the last year and a half. We've been talking to them and working with them to enhance their ability. Going forward, the big lessons for mm -hmm. me in terms of dealing with the pandemic and the climate change a global emergency, is the fact that these are global problems that no country, no matter how rich, can protect itself from. You can't build a wall around yourself and say that you can be safe. You cannot be safe. And, uh, you know, we, we have been demonstrated that very, very clearly. And we still are with, you know, vaccines not being uh, given to the rest of the world and, you know, only provided to the rich countries. We fail to learn the lesson that we should have learned. The second important lesson that came out was the need to listen to the science. And we saw this demonstrated very clearly by different leaders of different countries who either did or didn't listen to the scientists and took actions appropriately. It's very clear. Leaders who took science seriously and took actions according to the science saved lives. Leaders who didn't were responsible for that loss of life. How does that idea of, of, you know, following the science apply to climate, right? Like, what, what would you want to say to world leaders about that issue? Well, science, the climate change problem globally was identified originally by the scientists. The various successive reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change over the years. We now have the sixth assessment report coming out. And they've been telling leaders what to do. So it's not as if any of this is new. It's all old. But leaders have not been listening or they have listened, but they haven't done enough or they've promised to do things and they haven't done what they promised. This is all we hear from our so-called leaders. 
Words. Words that sound great, but so far has led to no action. We are now heading for the crisis and emergency, as uh, Greta Thunberg keeps pointing out quite rightly, because of the inaction of our leaders. But they've now had 30 years of blah, 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 and where has that led us? You know, they talk. Build back better, blah, 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 green economy. Blah, 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 blah. is her assessment, and she's absolutely right. They talk, but they don't do. Coming back to Bangladesh for a minute, you know, you were involved in some of the first projections for like what percentage of the country that could be inundated as seas continued to rise. What ways do you see, you know, Bangladesh being able to adapt in this level of the sea? So Bangladesh is a very low-lying deltaic country, and therefore we are definitely uh, vulnerable to the impacts of sea level rise and salinity. But it's a very gradual process. So it's what we call a slow emergency. The salinity is creeping up. So what we are doing is a two-phased approach to dealing with it. The first one being adapting to the conditions as they come up. And I'll give you two examples. In the dry season in Bangladesh, the sources of drinking water have become saline in a large part of the coastal zone, the low-lying coastal zone. And people have to drink salty water. If you and I were to go there, it would actually taste salty. So what we have been doing now for the last number of years is everybody in the coastal zone has rooftop rainwater harvesting. Big tanks on the rooftop, they harvest rainwater during the monsoon period when we have lots of water. And then they use that for drinking purposes for the few months of the dry season when the other sources of water become saline. And millions of people are doing that now. Similarly, the traditional varieties of rice are not able to cope with the rising salinity of the seawater coming into the land. And most of our farmers still grow rice. Our scientists have been breeding salt-tolerant varieties of rice, and we now have well over a dozen varieties that are more saline tolerant and are being distributed and used by the farmers. But ultimately, even those adaptations will run out. We won't be able to adapt forever. And we will therefore then have to start thinking about people moving. They won't be able to continue where they are now. And so we have now what we call a second order adaptation strategy, where we are thinking about enabling, capacitating, educating the children of the people in those areas uh, so that they don't have to end up becoming farmers and fishers like their parents, but they can go to nearby towns and get educated and become doctors, nurses, engineers, and get other professions and take their families to live with them at their own volition. This is not a forced movement. These are enabling people to make these decisions themselves and decide for themselves where they want to go and what they want to do. These are obviously like really difficult questions about where, you know, someone lives and what their livelihood is. Like, how do you approach trying to have these really hard conversations across such a wide area? And what's that like, you know, like trying to identify like leaders in, in communities across Bangladesh well, it's a big challenge, that's for sure. But I would say in Bangladesh, I would claim that we are far ahead of any other country in terms of the population at large understanding this issue. So the level of awareness of climate change in Bangladesh is very, very high. Everybody knows about it. 
not only do they know about the climate change problem, they are now going up a very steep learning curve on how to deal with it. And that depends on where you are, who you are, what you do. It's not a one size fit all. And as I said, you know, the farmers and the fishers and the people living in the coastal area are going up that learning curve very, very fast. And the key ingredient in all of this is not money. It's not even technology. It's in people's understanding, people's willingness to take actions and change behavior. And that Bangladesh has in spades. I would say the people of Bangladesh, they're very poor. We're one of the poorest countries still in the world, we are, although we're getting better. But nevertheless, we are a highly resilient people. We are used to adversity. Adversity is not new to us. And we are used to facing adversity and indeed overcoming adversity. And that is the spirit in which we are now moving forward. And I don't want to minimize the scale of the problem, but I do want to emphasize that Bangladesh is not going to let the problem defeat us. We can't prevent the events from happening. They're still going to do a lot of damage, but we can help you not lose lives. Does technology have a role in sort of shaping a, like a livable future in Bangladesh, or, or do you see that as kind of like a side issue? Absolutely. Technology is key, but the ability to use technology and not just use a given technology that is given to you, but adapt it to make it useful for yourself is the real key. And I'll give you two indicators. In Bangladesh, we have near universal mobile phone coverage. Everybody in Bangladesh, every adult and many kids also have mobile phones. And a large number of them not only have mobile phones, they have smartphones as well. And the smartphone technology actually is a leapfrogging technology. They don't even have to be able to read and write. All they need to do is to, you know, put their finger on an icon and then they can watch video and they can enter the whole world. And I mentioned the cyclone warning systems. Cyclone warnings are so sophisticated, people watch the satellite on their smartphone and they can figure out how many hours they have to get to the shelter before the cyclone is going to come and hit them. And that's knowledge that is usable by the citizen themselves. And that to me is the strength of this. It's knowledge combined with citizens knowing what to do with that knowledge. That is the power that we are able to unleash. Another good example in Bangladesh, we have the biggest solar home systems in the world. Six million households providing solar light. These are poor households, by the way, in rural areas, most of them. Providing light to people completely done by private sector entrepreneurs who are providing these solar panels and batteries and teaching people how to use them. And people are using them effectively and they have now light at night, which they didn't used to have before. And incidentally, the biggest reason for doing it and the biggest outcome of that uh, having solar light at night is the children can do their homework, which they couldn't do before when they had to use a kerosene lamp, which the light replaces. And the children now can do homework, they can study, they can do better in school. And so there are win-win benefits out of this kind of investment. So these are, you know, just a few of the many, many stories that can be told about uh, Bangladeshis going forward, both incrementally and in a, in a leapfrogging manner as well. These are things that we will be able to, when we go to scale, will make huge differences. You seem like someone who's fairly optimistic in the face of a lot of pretty stark realities. What, I'm wondering where that hope comes from, like what keeps you, you motivated? Yes, I admit to being a super optimist, <laughs> despite uh, what things might look like around. And I don't want to be unrealistic, but I do think my optimism has a basis in reality as well. And the biggest reality in which I put my optimism is our people and particularly our young people. 
Now, the next generation is where I'm putting my faith. I, you know, I teach in a university. My students are the best and the brightest, no less than any student in Harvard or Yale or in the U.S. They have the ability to learn, absorb, and solve problems as much as any others anywhere in the world. And with the current state of internet technology and the global world, they don't have to travel to Oxford and Harvard to study. They can do it out of Dhaka and Bangladesh and learn as well as those. And what are they learning? They are learning in the forefront of the country that's dealing with climate change, how to tackle climate change. And that knowledge of how to tackle climate change is going to become a global good. You are going to ask them to come and help you do that. And so in my estimation, the foundation is there for Bangladesh to become a global leader in tackling climate change, not just in our own country, but exporting that knowledge to other countries, particularly vulnerable to other developing countries, South Knowledge Exchange, but even the North will be able to learn from uh, Bangladesh on how to deal with the impacts of climate change. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. You know, we, we have already passed into a climate change world. The past is no longer telling us what's going to happen in the future. The future is brand new. That was Salim Al-Hook, director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development based in Bangladesh. He's one of the brave people who is facing an unjust and harsh reality. The world is becoming more dangerous because of fossil fuel pollution. The rich countries like China and the U.S. must do more to stop polluting the atmosphere. But instead of turning away from the changes that are happening, Hook is trying to adapt to them and make life safer. That's true for Sarah Nandudu in Uganda as well. You also want to learn from what others are doing so that uh, we have a collective effort to fight these climate change effects. So we'd also be happy to listen to others and we may learn from them. In coming weeks, we'll talk with other people who are making big changes to try to adapt to a warming climate, including a climate migrant who fled wildfires in California for the relative safety of Minnesota. We'll also go to the heart of American coal country to hear from an environmentalist who's working to end the coal era and slow climate change while also trying to protect workers. But first, next week on the show, how a kelp and oyster farmer in Connecticut is trying to get us to rethink what it means to have sustainable food systems. If you ask the ocean this really simple question, you're like, okay, what does it make sense to grow? The ocean says to you, why don't you grow things that you don't have to feed and don't swim away? That's next week on Heat of the Moment. Heat of the Moment is a partnership between foreign policy and the climate investment funds. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Scott Andrews, Dan Efron, Laura Rosbrow-Tellum, Claudia Tady, and Zamone Perez. The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan champion of climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in the series do not necessarily represent those of the Climate Investment Funds, foreign policy, or their partners. Interested in learning more in the run-up to COP26? We're offering free access to a foreign policy analytics team briefing called Firm Zero Emission Power. Normally, that's only available to FP Insider subscribers, but you can read the report for free by submitting your email. Go to foreignpolicy.com slash COP26 to learn more. Thank you for listening.